The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Swinging Swords Playground Equipment Company hits a snag when silly children forget to sit on the flat of the blades. Contests of will, necessity, and silly affectation. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This week we have part two of a roundtable with Michael Z. Williamson and several of the writers featured in the new anthology Freehold Defiance. This is a collection of short stories set in Michael Z. Williamson's Freehold universe during the climax of the war between the libertarian-leaning world of Grania and Earth's underhanded and oleaginous United Nations. Along with Michael Z. Williamson, we have Kevin Eikenberry, Christopher and Jamie Denote, and Philip Wolrab. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, it's the May Rubies and Rust. Catherine Asaro ebook sale. To celebrate the mass market paperback publication of Catherine Asaro's The Vanished Seas, Bain eBooks has major discounts on all ebooks by Catherine Asaro. The Vanished Seas is the third book in Catherine Asaro's excellent science fiction and mystery series, featuring the tough Major Bajan, who hails from the deepest of planetary ghettos but whose investigation into wrongdoings frequently shakes the highest levels of intergalactic empire. During May, get $2 off the ebook of The Vanished Seas and get $1 off all other Catherine Asaro ebooks, including The Bronze Skies, Undercity, these are part of the Major Bajan series, plus dollar discounts on Sunrise Alley, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. These are available wherever Bain ebooks are distributed. Sale ends May 31st, 2021 at the crack of June. This is part two of a two-part roundtable discussion of Freehold Defiance. Part one is available in last week's podcast. Uh, let's talk about uh, a I want to get to Mike's stories, of course, but let's also let's move to "Fire in the Deep, Angel in the, on the Wind" by Christopher Denote and um, and Philip Wolrab. Uh, are you you're still there, right, Doc? Yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. Still here. We can't see you, but your voice is here. Um, so uh, this is a cool long story um, that is. Uh, I mean, it's. I think it might. Even, it's. It's definitely novelette length. Um, and, uh, it's, it's about firefight, uh, you know, it's about fighting and, and, but it's also about just the dangerous nature of this world Mike has created as well, which is very cool. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, what's going on at the beginning of it. And then, uh, and, uh yeah. So, uh, after that, yeah, the very, the very, very first pass of this story tied into one that was in the previous anthology and it was basically going to be like the survivors of that unit uh egressing out of the out of the area uh and that didn't work out and so we ended up you know moving them around uh on the planet so it's a different unit but it's still um you're still dealing with uh primarily british and irish uh well primarily irish peacekeepers that has an attached british medic and um, so it opens up where, you know, they're essentially getting the snot shot out of them uh, and their armored vehicles have all been shot to pieces. And this medic is trying to keep people alive while, you know, because she, she's essentially non-combatant. Um, you know, the, the, the way the medics are written uh, in this, uh, from the UN perspective, they've reverted back to their Geneva Convention status and they're not carrying firearms. So they're out there doing what they're supposed to do, which is- She doesn't even know how to use a dang rifle. 
Uh, no, she, she in this. yeah, she's never been trained on it. She's from, you know, one of the, uh, what was, I forget which British city I had her coming from, but you said Birmingham. Uh, yeah. Um, she's never held a firearm in her life. Uh, and yet she's in the army. Uh, and so there's a, there's a little scene in the, in the story where they hand her a, a rifle and she's just like, I don't know what to do with this thing. And the, the Russian pilot has to basically coach her on how to, how to use a, a fire alarm or a firearm along with her sergeant. Um, so Molly is, you know, she's, she's actually modeled on a couple of, um, of, uh, British army medics that come out of the GWAT, you know, several of her in the Victor, uh, was it military cross, uh, and other very high awards for, dispatches. Yeah. Several yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, the reason why I crafted that character the way I did, uh, was kind of an homage to them. Um, but from her viewpoint, you're seeing like the the egress from hell uh, that turns into the medevac from hell because uh, you know at one point they get shot down, uh, and then you know her her war is obviously trying to deal with the injuries that are going on, and then there are things literally trying to eat the the survivors of the party. Yeah. Uh, so it isn't so much a it's a very much man versus nature uh, story on the ground side uh, versus uh, Chris Half, which is, you know, the operations center uh, piece and getting people where they need to go and getting them out of um, getting them out of Dodge. So uh, it, it was interesting, you know, having the two different viewpoints uh, in the story. Yeah. Talk about that, uh, Chris, the, um, so this is a, bad situation where you know you know you've essentially lost and you're trying to to save what you can right um and this that still requires a certain sort of bravery um and ability in fact maybe more so um and and tell us what the heck this russian secret thing uh, because that comes into the story and it's an interesting detail that that maybe um is of interest to set up as well um, just real quick, um, all the opinions that I express here are my own personal ones and do not represent the official position of the United States government, Department of Defense, or the United States Air Force. So just to give a little uh, cover here. Um, the Russian thing was actually a bit of a holdover from, like Phil said, the original pass that we did in it, which was going to sort of be an immediate sequel to Phil's uh, story and resistance. And by immediate, we mean like seconds later. Like the final frame of that story was the opening frame of this one, the way it was kind of originally set up. But the Russian piece holding on to that was good because we had to set up a location where like all the normal um, all the normal assets the UN could have used to even prevent this would have they had to have a reason to not necessarily be available. So the point being is like all the conventional forces aren't allowed to operate in there. Uh, Mike has set it up in the past that um, on um, Grania, the, the UN fight, um, they tend to use Russian um, Spetsnaz equivalent in the future or Russian private military contractor equivalent, we'll say in the future, to go in and do the really dirty work. And the best way to do the really dirty work and get away with it is to keep everybody else, even your own side, from being able to see and affect and command and control what's going on in their assigned zone. Actually, and, a lot of that was Doc. Doc's that, a lot of that up. Yeah. That, in that previous story, the um, the the Spetsnaz uh, originally I'd written them as coming from Russia. I think we changed it to the to a Russian planet or a Russian uh, themed planet. But uh, Russia, yeah, those guys were a real piece of work. Um, and, and the thinking on that was this is all the horror stories that came out of uh, Russia, uh, Russian involvement in Afghanistan in the 1980s, some of the units that lost control there or were deliberately brutal. Um, so these guys were way off the reservation, but the UN was using them that, because for very troubled areas that they had just lost control of and, you know, no questions asked. Um, and so... Yeah, the, the Gronians did not like these guys, and they they dealt with them in a very 
brutal fashion and that was kind of the setup coming into this story like you know they're literally the screaming russians in the background being you know butchered by the the granians because these guys had literally like set people on fire inside their homes uh, you know without regards of were their children present or or not so nobody was treating these these guys real uh nobody was taking the prisoner uh, and so these four Irish peacekeepers and, and this British medic attached was, was, you know, fair game, at least originally from the Grani perspective. Uh, and that kind of held over into, into this story, even though the, the setting changed a bit from uh, the previous anthology. Mm-hmm. Well, why have, why, what has happened that has, um, that has led to this, uh, it's sort of like a, a, a forward operating base sort of thing, right? Um, that- pacification. A lot of it is uh, trying to, pa- you know, area control and pacification. Um, so, you know, they've got fobs out there and they're launching, uh, you know, it's sort of like a combination at this point of doing counterinsurgency, also doing pacification or um, combat operations against the Granian insurgents. So that's part of the reason why, too, we're looking at it from that immediate above tactical echelon higher headquarters is we set it up that there's a general counteroffensive going uh, against uh, Granian forces. And it also kind of starts setting up the ambiguous side of the stage of the war going, hey, is the tide starting to turn here? Is the freehold forces actually reaching some degree of parity? You know, it's kind of like it's a very nervous uh, time for the U.N., but, you know, the, the folks working there, we'll call it the conventional forces, are doing what they're supposed to do. We black out the, the special operations area and, oh, my God, what's going on over there? And then when they start peeking into it, they're like, you guys are doing what? And we have who, you know, it's, it's that, oh, crap, you know, now we have to get these, we got to do something about this and get these folks out of there. Um, so, and it was actually fun, too, to make this a very Commonwealth-heavy uh, um, force, you know, to play around a bit, so to speak, with the Brits um the uh the irish and uh russians you know both good and bad by the way good and bad russians in this so you know just so that we're not just treating them like stock villains necessarily um so but um and it was really fun i think to watch phil wrap the uh the combat scenes in this really predator and alien kind of vibe you know aliens kind of vibe that i thought he pulls off really well and then to immediately jump to that perspective of the folks sitting in the operations center where the war looks like a completely different beast to them until they can actually put sensors on and start seeing what's happening um the you know it all wraps up in that you know massive medevac uh, from hell at the end which is actually inspired by real world events and it was inspired by a facebook thread on mike's uh, facebook page that went completely off the rails and that's actually kind of what created the genesis for this story even too so you know thank uh, thanks to that uh Mr. Actually, who commented on one of Mike's posts once, because uh, that's how we got here. Yeah, Mike's Facebook is fun, by the way. No, it's Every, not. <laughs> everyone should go and take it and look in on that. Um, he's a he's a, he's like like an incredibly droll and and dagger filled writer uh, of of quips um, that. Okay. Uh, He's, he's he's nice in person, but he's really, <laughs> he can be really evil in print. So, anyway, yeah, yeah. The the, the background universe that um that they worked with already uh, existed in what um, Peter Grant had built on a bit in um, Forged in Blood. You know, this is uh, fall mating season for some of the animals. Uh, they're hungry, they're vicious, and they will eat people. You know, there's you know, there's a middle of a battle, and there, there's rippers tearing people apart and eating them. And you know, this. Uh... What, what are why did uh, the world evolve such deadly animals? And... I mean, we've got leopards, lions, tigers. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that will eat people. But on Grania, there's yeah. there's like you know like super coyotes and right. Um, yeah, he, they came up with that. That was neat. Um, yeah, the the dire yote. Yeah, I was, was particularly awesome. proud of that. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the best part of that story for me is uh, that they try to come to a, a ceasefire so they can pull the, uh, the wounded out. Yeah, well, let's yeah. talk about, all right, so who, um, the other main character, another main character in the story is, is, um, is a local. Yeah. Who's had, who's 
who's got some terrible wounds and Molly treats him, right? And she really fights for the ability to treat him. Talk about him. What's his name again? Uh, oh, no. Uh, anyway, he's, he's Irish. Right? I remember Peter that. He's Irish. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, that was, that was the other thing. Like, you know, you look at the American Civil War, there were Irish units on both sides of that war. Uh, so you had kind of the same thing going on in, in Grania uh, with the this character and, you, you know, a little bit of the back and forth between him and uh, uh, Sergeant First Class Owen. Um, uh, and yeah, Molly, you know, she doesn't, she's a medic. So she, she treats everybody. That's kind of in the medic creed. Uh, it, it goes past looking at uniforms and that kind of thing. So um, she, you know, the, the, the Granian in the group, um, just as she would, you know, one of her own. So, and he's had his arm blown off and he's bleeding out. So, I mean, if she didn't put a tourniquet on that thing, he would. <coughs> All right. And, you know, and this is also with her on limited, uh, limited medical supplies, because it's basically what she could carry in her aid bag. Uh, and, you know, she's having to adapt and overcome as she's got several very serious casualties uh, that she's trying to keep alive. Uh, you know, and one of the, um, th that's kind of a reoccurring theme throughout the stories, having to deal with that. Uh, you know, get, even with the, even with the medevac, you know, she gets some equipment uh, from the, from the medevac bird. Uh, and then immediately loses it because, you know, medevac gets shot down. So um, she's she's constantly in this, you know, not only is she battling against the nature aspect of this, but she's also fighting for, for the wounded that she's trying to take care of. And uh, unfortunately, you know, things are conspiring against her and she's losing these people as she goes along, having to suppress her own feelings uh, just to keep going. Uh, like, uh, and, and these things are, are incredibly fast, ultra-violent, and um, they're, uh, they're bad beasts, right? They, uh... Yeah, it, it was like a coyote crossed with like a, a you know, a predatory cat uh, or a large cat species. So not only is it on the ground or very quick on the ground, but it can get into the trees. And, uh, you know, you, there's one scene in there where it strikes from the trees and uh, takes out one of the point people. And, you know, it's like, man, we, we you know, the, the whole patrol is just like, what just happened? Because uh, it came from a, from a direction they didn't expect. Yeah. And it's really kind of scary when the guy that you thought was your leader, your new leader and protector is, is uh, cut in half in front of me and eaten. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is on me now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Noah was safe in this story. That's, that's certainly true. So, yeah, it's a cool, I mean, it's a cool, like, uh, uh, two, two vision, two vision story, like double vision, uh, story. Uh, what else can we say about it? That, um, that so my, my favorite parts that they, they, they worked in there so well was, uh, they're trying to come to a, a ceasefire with the locals to get the wounded out. And they're told, okay, well, all of our units are standing down, but you understand there's a whole bunch of people here who aren't actually under our control. And they didn't like us, and they like you even less. So we got no say on what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the insurgents of the insurgency. Uh, that was, and that's kind of like based on reality. Is you know, to oh, expand yeah. the control of an organized um, insurgents movement might not be as wide as they want people to think. I mean, you know, you just look at Iraq, or you look at um, Afghanistan, or you look at Syria, for Pete's sake. Um, and even if you think back to, um, you know, the, the troubles in Ireland and uh, the Anglo-Irish War, um, which was kind of a big inspiration for me working on this, is because you had the provost, you had the real uh, Irish Republican Army, you had Sean Fine, and not everybody is necessarily aligned or respects the operational control of the other. So the idea of putting a go uh, of going there, uh, there with, hey, not everybody who's fighting on the freehold even if they're against the un they're not necessarily for the freehold government you know so i figured that was, we 
thought that was a really good kind of real world analog to suck into it because it kind of keeps it, it gives that sense of reality of the way how ugly those wars can really be yeah. and uh, how complicated they are and especially as mike has been fond of pointing out in the past when you have sophisticated bad guys uh, sophisticated factions going at it you know these aren't uh, natives in huts here these are technologically advanced societies that you know are just up in the ante against each other in terms of the uh, degree of violence and what they're willing to do then you add on top of that, like, you know, an environment which lets you write very cool action scenes that are reminiscent of some very cool action movies. And it's a heck of a uh, callback. Then it, it, it's a good potent mix. Well, the story is a lot of fun. And uh, speaking of predators, uh, let's talk about a few of these uh, Williamson stories that are in there. Uh, we, the uh, the Humans Call of Duty is, is one of my all-time favorite Mike Williamson stories. Um, and, and it's the fact that there are these horrible creatures on Grania is the reason that leopards are brought in, right? It's because That's part of it, yeah. Um, leopards are highly intelligent. Um, there's even some that have disabled traps that were set for them. Um, they, the the Mujapriag leopard in India had like 300 confirmed kills. And this is in India where they don't keep very good records, so they have no idea how many people it killed. But it would kill dogs. It would kill cows. It would kill people. You know, the, the kids are walking home from school, and the last kid in the line disappears, and nobody sees anything. And eventually, they had an entire army regiment hunting it—a professional hunter. They had traps, and this thing was disabling traps, turning over the bodies that were used to bait it, um, <clears throat> eating parts of the body except for the poisoned parts, <clears throat> and then getting back out without getting caught. You know hair trigger leg traps nooses everything and it's like you're, you're waiting for the thing to show up with lock picks and uh, <laughs> come into mm. the door so I, i'd read about um some of those animals and it's like well you know th this takes it a level above a working dog you know, this is it's got better sense of smell better vision it's used to operating independently and there's always somebody who can convince themselves oh nice doggy but you hear a leopard go like, <laughs> And you realize it's nice. going to eat your face. You know, yeah. there's no, uh, there's no nice doggy. And the story is 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 in leopard point of view, which is very cool. Right. I wrote that for um, Joe Haldeman's uh, Future Weapons of War anthology way back. I put it in, in my universe. And this yeah, the is leopards, one of your first stories that you've ever. Well, yeah, actually, I, I'd written it. I think I'd originally written it before that and adapted it for that. It was one that got rejected by uh, several magazines. It's a simple story of revenge and killing. Like, well, this isn't a human being. This, this is a leopard with a leopard's perspective. And he's part of an intelligence gathering team. You know, he can sneak in places the humans can't, especially if their sensors are optimized to detect people, but not animals. Mm -hmm. And then they kill the handler. And now the leopard is... They shouldn't have done that. without a handler. That's right. Yeah. He shouldn't have killed his buddy. It's yeah. Not even no, his he, buddy so much as his... He takes it personally. Yeah. 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 yeah as a leopard would. It's, it's a leopard attachment he has to, to this guy. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you also bring in your, uh, your sort of sub-universe of Ripple Creek into this. Um, yeah, because that's actually... The main Ripple Creek stories are halfway between now and then. <clears throat> And I, there's a reference to that in the previous anthology, but we didn't have room to put the story in, and I get it finished. But uh, this story is called Bidding War, and mm -hmm. it is um, it references something I seem to remember from uh, Resistance about the Assassin's Guild. Um, is that the Professional Duelists Association? The Duelists yeah. Association. Yeah, the Assassin's Guild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, the, you know, the Ripple Creek um, team are the high-end security people. You know, it's thousands of dollars a day to hire them. And uh, with uh, transport being an issue out of system, they're running out of contracts. And they're in the position where they really don't want to take contracts from the UN because that will piss off the people they have to live with. Because they're they based on <laughs> this This section, yeah, yeah. yeah. They can't take contracts with the locals because that'll piss off the invading force. But they've got bills to pay. <laughs> they need some source of income. And they have to decide, you know, so <clears throat> do we have loyalties here? 
are we neutral but combatants? You know, what are we? And uh, <clears throat> there's a couple of people who have uh, large amounts of money offered for certain bureaucrats. <clears throat> there's no reason the bureaucrats should get to sit out the war and let the soldiers do all the dying. You know, that, that's just unfair. Yeah. Especially if they're such assholes as your character. <laughs> Some of them are, yeah. Some of them deserve. There's a couple of the bureaucrats we've referenced are, you know, very honorable people trying to do the right thing. And then, you know, some of mm -hmm. them are just looking for the money and some of them are purely procedural and some are flat out assholes. <clears throat> yeah. Well, Ripple Creek is very competent in picking out the, <laughs> the right targets usually. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, we have the, and they also serve, which is kind of Red Dawn ish to me um, yeah i've got them well they're doing recon and they, they see convoys moving into the area and you know when, when the when the enemy is bringing in convoys you have an opportunity to stop them before that progresses if they get sufficiently built up it's a much harder fight and uh some of that was based on stuff i did as, as op for uh, you know it's amazing where you can go with a clipboard a hard hat and a frown you just you just look at stuff and frown and make a note on a clipboard, and if someone comes towards you, you just sort of look at them and it, you know they're afraid that you're going to write them up. So you know you can do a whole bunch of stuff just with the right attitude. Get in places yeah. and get in places, and then you start fighting. <laughs> and and it's a cool story. You also and and there's a really moving story in here. The price, which is a brother and sister, uh, a brother and sister. Um, they're, they're they're trying to take out a supply depot space station right is mm -hmm. that um, um well they're taking out a bunch of stuff i think that that was another one i'd written before i got published with bain and um i've read that story before yeah or i do, i wrote it early on and i i tried to stick too much backstory and universe into a short story <clears throat> and uh so john ringo came to me for a story for citizens anthology <clears throat> i took that dusted it off i gutted about two-thirds of it rewrote it shorter uh, and then jim mintz uh was the editor for that and uh <clears throat> called up and had some some very good suggestions that tightened it up and gave it more punch hang on a second i got a calming fit <clears throat> this is um seasonal allergies not uh not the covid yeah but i'm afraid to cough in public because people flip out yeah I can attest you get it every year. Yeah, I've seen well, you get it even worse. And, and this year it's bad. And then we're living in a construction zone as the freeway expands near us. There's dust everywhere. So it's it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the price is about, it, it's really, a, a, it, it's one of those inevitable stories about what's what's happened to this uh, brother and sister as they, um, and, and they're heroic and um, it's, uh, it's a moving tale. Yeah, this all ties into that final um, Hail Mary attack that you know pretty much brings the war to the the denouement. And uh, like whatever you can do, wreck it. You know, if you can survive, great. But we we've got to take out all this infrastructure, yeah. and it's got to be done in this time frame. Well, that is um, where we are with this anthology. We are toward the end, and there's a, I mean, there's a lot of stories of, of the UN uh, who we don't like uh, getting their asses kicked, finally, after all of this. Um, well, let me summarize some of those. Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, a story I wanted for the previous anthology was the ground's eye view of the attack happening, and that story never showed up. Yeah, we're getting close to deadline. So Jess expanded her story in that one. It was just Spider's Web to give some of that. <clears throat> so for this, Janie Ibsen actually wrote that story where it's uh, city safety, the equivalent of you know police and paramedics. And they're watching the attack happen and the city getting invaded. And like, well, what do we do? Like, well, we start fighting. You know, let's organize some stuff. <clears throat> and um, it's... Uh, very creative and a lot of fun. It was a neat story. And then Jonathan Green has uh, one of uh, 
a uh, health and safety inspection by uh, one of the bureaucrat agencies. Uh, they're going to uh, different uh, space habitats and uh, logging everything, documenting everything, and you know, getting them under control. And uh, the uh, the habitat is playing games with them, and it's again hilarious. But uh, yeah, basically, they uh, each everybody who's got a radio transmitter on that station picks a different role and starts playing it. There's a uh, there's a uh, religious cult. There's the mining operations center. There's um, the favorable to the UN <coughs> contingent who are you know hiding out. And every few hours, some of them will switch roles. <coughs> They'll switch allegiances um, back and forth and just drive them absolutely nuts. It's like a psyop. Yeah. Oh, it's thing, massively yeah. so. Um, cool. Jessica did um, solitude. It's somebody who just wants to be left alone. Um, he doesn't get along with people. He's had some legal issues as far as you know the freehold goes. And the safest thing to do is just have him at a remote station by himself and everyone leaves him alone. But they want to socialize him and bring him into the to the group and make him part of society and watch some TV and you know that. <laughs> She's the kind of person you wouldn't do that to, and you know, and that came off great. And then uh <clears throat> Jason and uh John Holmes had uh they'd done one while we were wrapping up the previous one i said well, we did this just for fun it's not going in there but <clears throat> you can read it for a laugh and i read it and i said this is actually highly entertaining and you know lots of fun so it's two retired uh freehold forces snipers who and they're related to each other one's the um, um son-in-law the other <clears throat> and they're in a contest to see who can get the most complicated trick shot assassination of a UN troop and the furthest distance <laughs> and uh, wait wait if he backs up just a little bang all right yeah I got another meter <laughs> and uh and they're just in this contest and they're they've got an entire um district's worth of troops are just living in absolute terror because at any given point somebody's head's just going to disappear you know you're going to get center mass or you know it's just nightmarish and there's a nominally UN sniper who's watching this and going, so I see what they're doing. And I think I know who these guys are. <laughs> a lot of shooters are very distinctive in their styles. <clears throat> and uh, so he's kind of countering them, but he's not particularly favorable to the UN itself. Will McCaskey, I did a uh, story for an anthology he put together with uh, Laurel Hamilton. Actually, Jess and I both did, um, had a lot of fun. And I asked, uh, if uh, he wanted to be in this. And so he moved down into what I referenced to the, when the archipelago is the South Islands, south of the main landmass. And that's where a lot of the Indonesian settlers and influences. So these are uh, <clears throat> very traditional Indonesian martial artists and veterans, and they've just sunk back into the jungle <clears throat> and periodically come out of the jungle and engage in some significant raid tactics. You know, they, they understand that there's, there's an occupation coming and they're going to do everything they can to slow it down. And uh, this needs to have a completely different culture. You know, because, you know, the entire nations, entire planets are not all one culture. You know, and that's the easy way out in a lot of uh, TV series. But mm -hmm. you know, they're a completely different culture, completely different approach. <clears throat> and um, it's uh, lots of... Uh, wet, humid jungle fighting. You know, it's neat to have a divergent uh, perspective there. Cool. Uh, one thing I want to, you, when, you, when we referenced the, the weapon earlier, <clears throat> um, you know, you talked about how uh, in, uh, tough the uh, training was. And when uh, I first met uh, Mike Massa, he referenced that. He says, so you, uh, you dialed the training down for the civilians, didn't you? And I said, yeah. You go on Amazon, there's the civilians who review that are going, well, this training is outrageous and brutal and pointless. And the vets are going, well, it's, it's, it's a little like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it was enough for me <laughs> to, to realize that I wouldn't have made it 
through uh, what is what is that the basic that the seals take called buds yeah basic underwater demolitions yeah, seals, yeah. <laughs> that would have been pretty tough. so um but this was even i mean they it was it was a cool book the weapon is a great novel like it may be my favorite uh, be after freehold of, of this i series, so. yeah i uh i did enjoy that one because of the uh the intensity and the the, the breadth of the the viewpoint yeah. well uh out now is freehold defiance which is this great anthology um uh look it's 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 actual book it's not just a picture behind me um and it's available at booksellers everywhere um and it has some great stories in it and um it's got some great mike williamson stuff in it and um it's, it's just good stuff so mike williamson uh kevin eikenberry Jamie Denote, Chris Denote, and uh, Philip Doc Rollrab, thank you all so much for being with us and talking us to us about Freehold Defiance. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. That was part two of a two-part discussion of Freehold Defiance. Part one is available in last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Naval Station Ganymede. Sol System, Solarian League. This is confirmed? Admiral Meridor's heckle asked. Yes, sir. Rear Admiral Leonard Padaloshti, heckle's chief of staff, shook his head, his expression pale. Captain Sugatani's the duty officer. He says System Watch Command picked up the initial hyperfootprints 16 minutes ago. They were right on top, I mean right on top of Admiral Ningju Squadron, and the sensor platforms detected a massive missile launch. We don't see any of the cruiser's impeller signatures anymore. They're just gone. Shit, Heckel said flatly, then shook himself. Well, I suppose that clears up any little ambiguity about whether or not they're hostile. Padaloshi only nodded, and Heckle sighed. All right, Leonard, I guess we'd better get down to the command center. How many of them did you say we're talking about? Sukatani makes it a minimum of 350 signatures at Super Dreadnought range, sir, but he's pretty sure that's low. Total count for all types is about 600, plus 55 of what have to be freighters or transports in a separate echelon. Sukatani estimates the transport group's escort at another 16 battlecruisers and a pair of super dreadnoughts. It was his turn to sigh. I don't think this is just a raid, sir. No, Heckle agreed softly. No, I suppose not. HMS Imperator. Sol System. Ghost Rider's giving us good numbers, Your Grace. Andrea Jirowalski crossed a stand beside Honor as she gazed into the master plot. A steady stream of additional icons appeared in it as she watched. CIC makes it a total of 62 super dreadnoughts and 206 battlecruisers in Ganymede orbit, the ops officer continued, consulting her memo board. 61 cruisers, 117 destroyers and other light craft, and at least 52 tankers, colliers, and major service craft, a million tons or more each of one sort or another. Might be a couple more of those on the far side of Ganymede, 
and we don't have a hard count on deployed missile pods yet. We won't have one until the platforms get a lot closer, but we've already confirmed over 4,000. I see. Honor heard the distant note in her own voice and tasted the burning concern in Jarawalski's mind glow. She knew what caused it. She could taste the same worry in Mercedes Brigham, in George Reynolds, in Harper Brantley, and Teofil Kagari. She didn't have to taste Rafe Cardonis's mind glow to know it would have been the same. They were afraid of her, especially after the near destruction of Bethany Ningju Squadron. They were frightened of what she'd become. Even worse, they were frightened for her, and that was the truly terrible thing, because she wasn't frightened of who and what she was, and a part of her knew she should be. Too bad Scotty's not here, a voice said in the back of her brain, remembering another day on a moon called Blackbird. But then she brushed that memory aside. This was a different time and a different place, and she wanted no reminder of that day staying her hand when the moment came. She turned her head to look at her communications officer. How long till the Hermes buoy is in position, Harper? The distant soprano asked. Another 29 minutes, Your Grace, Commander Brantley replied. He paused a moment, then added, They're trying to contact us by calm laser, ma'am. Are they? Honor smiled thinly. I think we'll just wait till we've delivered our other message and don't have any irritating delays. Besides, that smile turned even thinner and colder. It won't hurt a thing to let them sweat a little before we talk to them, now will it? No, Your Grace, not one bit, Brantley said, and an edge of satisfaction glittered in his mind glow, clear and sharp enough to cut even through his concern for her. Central Command, NSG Able One. Naval Station Ganymede, Sol System, Solarian League. Still nothing, Elmalai? Admiral Heckel asked quietly, and Captain Volodymyrov shook his head. No, sir. Volodymyrov had been the communications watch officer when the intruders translated into N-space. Lieutenant Watson's initial challenge went out five minutes after they completed their alpha translations. That's, he checked the time, 41 minutes. So they could have contacted us 27 minutes ago. And by now, they've known we're trying to talk to them for at least 22 minutes. Either way... They've had time to reply to us if they wanted to. Heckle nodded. The strangers, they had to be mantis, although they had yet to activate any transponders or identify themselves, were almost exactly 19 light minutes from NSG. That was twice the improved cataphract's maximum powered range, and he doubted that that spacing was a coincidence. The mantis must have acquired enough cataphracts to have an excellent grasp of their maximum accelerations and burn times by now. For that matter, they had to be aware that cataphract accuracy at that sort of distance ranged all the way up from not a chance in hell to simply really piss poor, which made it an ideal range from which to open some sort of conversation with no one getting shot on either side. But if they'd wanted to talk to him, they could have been doing that for almost half an hour now. Of course, there'd be a 19-minute transmission delay built into any conversation, but sooner or later, they had to say something. He wished he was going to be happy when they did. Once upon a time, and not so very long ago, actually, he would have been confident of Naval Station Ganymede's ability to stand off any attack. Enough super dreadnoughts could undoubtedly have taken or destroyed the station and all its platforms even then, but no one, except the Solarian League Navy, had possessed that many super dreadnoughts. And so, in those innocent days of yore, he would have been much more confident of a happy outcome. Under current circumstances? He glanced at the time display again. His initial report to Old Earth had gone out even before Volodymyrov had challenged the Mantis, and System Watch Command sensor reports and analyses were automatically relayed to both Naval Station Mars and Old Terra. But Old Chicago was just over 46 light minutes distant at the moment, so Admiral Kingsford would only now be finding out the capital system had been invaded. It would be at least three quarters of an hour before any response from him could get back to Heckle, and he wondered what that response would be, or if there'd be anyone here to receive it. What's already in a state now, Captain Tsugatani? he asked. 
We're closed up at battle station, sir, Franklin Sukatani, the central command duty officer, replied. All mobile units report readiness one on weapons and defenses, and most of the destroyers and cruisers have their impellers online and wedges and sidewalls engaged. The super dreadnoughts will be a while yet on that. All platforms missile defense is also at readiness one, and all missile pods have been prepped and brought online. He shrugged ever so slightly. We're as ready as we're going to be, sir. And you're no more confident we're ready enough than I am, Heckel thought. Not that either of them could say any such thing. Someone get me a cup of coffee, please, he said instead, and forced a smile that looked almost, almost natural. Looks like we may be waiting for a while. HMS Imperator, Sol System. The Hermes buoy's in position, Your Grace, Andrea Jarowalski said, and Honor glanced at the operations officer. She'd often wondered what Hamish, a stab of exquisite pain went through her with that name, had felt during his attack on Duquesne Base in Operation Buttercup. This wasn't the same, of course, and in more than one way. She doubted he'd ever truly hated even the Peeps, or any other enemy of the Star Kingdom for that matter. Not with a deep, visceral, ravening need to wreak death and destruction that burned like liquid oxygen, not him. But she wasn't him. Launch, she said softly, and turned back to the plot. Central Command, NSG Able One. Naval Station Ganymede, Sol System, Solarian League. Missile launch, multiple missile launches, Lieutenant Enright McGill announced sharply. Commodore Benjamin Shalkin turned quickly toward the announcement. He and his System Watch Command personnel had been watching the Mantis for over an hour now. The tension of that long wait had been more excruciating than anything he'd ever endured. The passing seconds had become a long, drawn-out water torture that he'd known had to be the worst thing that could ever happen to him. Now, as he crossed to McGill's shoulder, looked down at the lieutenant's display, he discovered he'd been wrong. 2,000 plus incoming, McGill announced. Initial velocity, 1,200 KPS, accelerating at 451 KPS squared. Shalkin put a hand on his shoulder and watched the vectors reach out across the display for Ganymede. Return fire, sir? Captain Sukatani asked, and Heckle nodded. You may engage, Captain, he said formally. Fire plan Agincourt. Sukatani looked at him for a moment. Then his mouth tightened and he nodded. Yes, sir. Fire plan Agincourt. He turned away, giving orders, and 15 seconds later, 120,000 improved cataphract pods belched 720,000 missiles at the Mantis. Heckel watched their icon streak across the plot and looked at Padaloshti. The chief of staff looked back, then gave him a small shrug. Most of their fire plans had envisioned using their pods in much smaller numbers, in carefully planned and metered salvos. Agincourt did not. Agincourt was an all-or-nothing throw of the dice designed to put the maximum possible weight of fire all the cataphracts Ganymede possessed into space in a single enormous wave. They couldn't possibly manage all the birds of an Agincourt launch, even with all of NSG's enormous telemetry capability, and he wasn't surprised Sukatani wasn't happy to burn them all in a single spasm. But the cataphracts were all they had, and they had to get them off before the incoming fire ripped them to pieces still in their pods. 720,000 missiles, the next best thing to three quarters of a million of them, over 7,000 per target, represented a terrifying weight of metal. Yet the truth was that neither he nor Padaloshti truly expected them to accomplish much. Targeting would have been questionable at 19 light minutes under any circumstances. The range was far too great for any control link, and given the reported efficacy of Manti-EW and missile defense systems, questionable was probably about to become futile which didn't even consider the fact that the Mantis were outside even Jupiter's hyperlimit. But it wasn't like he had a choice. Their own launch had made that much abundantly clear. And so did the comlink's total icy silence. They didn't even try to talk to us, he thought bleakly, not a word. They just came in, blew Ningju squadron to bits, and then sat there for a damned hour letting us sweat. And the whole time, they were planning on this. 
Maradors Heckel was one of the Solarian officers who'd never bought the official line about the Mesa atrocity. He'd met several Manticoran officers, including Admiral James Webster, the assassinated Manticoran ambassador to the League, and none of them had been homicidal maniacs. He didn't know what had happened in Mesa, but he'd been certain he knew what hadn't happened, because it had been impossible to imagine those officers deliberately slaughtering millions of civilians. Now, he found himself wondering if he'd been wrong, and what was about to happen to the star system of mankind's birth, if he had. The Mark 23s raced away from Grand Fleet, accelerating at a steady 46,000 gravities. Six minutes later, still more than 312 million kilometers short of Naval Station Ganymede, their impellers shut down, and they drove ballistically onward at 55% of light speed. If ONI's current estimate of Manti missile performance is accurate, and it would be nice if it finally was, given the price Admiral Capriotti paid to get us the numbers, they should light off again in about 28 minutes, sir, Captain Sukitani said quietly, and Heckle nodded. Their own cataphracts would take longer, assuming, as Sukitani said, that ONI's numbers were finally accurate, the Manti's total time of flight at 19 light minutes would be on the order of 37 minutes. The cataphract's first-stage impellers would burn out sooner and at a lower velocity, which meant their ballistic phase would be 56 million kilometers longer than the incoming birds, and that they'd require almost twice as long to cover it, 55 minutes as opposed to the Manti's 28, which meant that even though they'd fired within 20 seconds of one another, the Manti's laser heads would reach Ganymede almost 21 minutes before his cataphracts could reach attack range of them. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a big bowl of neutron star soup. Hey, a little goes a long way with a tapas assortment featuring interdimensional kraken along with thanks praise and gratitude to Kevin Ackenberry, Christopher Denote, Jamie Denote, Philip Woldrab, and Michael Z. Williamson, editor and authors of Freehold Defiance. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.